0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, We Have Seen His Glory. So, let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, verses 9 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I have already in this series made a point that there's no nation on earth like that of Israel. Israel alone is God's treasured possession, and the wonderful news for us as Gentiles is that God used Israel to bring us a Savior and the good news of the gospel. But today, I want to make the point that Israel is the only nation in human history where at that time there were two million of them all heard the voice of God speaking to them. This is the nation to whom God revealed his glory. You know, read Exodus 19, and read of the encounter with God, Look, if you're an atheist and you think there is no God, and you believe that's so, and because you've never seen God, you need to read Exodus 19. The only greater account in the Bible is the revelation of God that happened on Sunday morning in AD 33 when Jesus Christ stepped out of his tomb and proved himself to be alive. Back in 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human being to ever enter space. And because the Soviet Union was professedly atheistic, Gagarin, having been educated in that system, was himself also an atheist. And upon returning to Earth, he said, I've been to the heavens, and there's no God there. To which one American commentator quipped, all he had to do was open his spaceship door and step out, and he, and he would have seen God instantly. Well, that aside, Gagarin had not been to heaven. He had circled around the earth a few times, and furthermore, the Bible is very clear on this. 1 John 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. God can't be seen. God may choose to reveal his glory, and that's precisely what happened at Mount Sinai. So let's start with Exodus 19, verse 9a. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. See, God veils his splendor when he speaks with human beings. We have that in the incarnation. Jesus, who is God from eternity past, was found, says the book of John, veiled or covered in human flesh. And before the incarnation, God veiled his glory in numerous ways. Look, when Moses first encountered God at Sinai, as God came to him, he showed himself in a burning bush. That is to say, yeah, Moses had to be aware that he was standing You know, not in the presence of God, for in fact, there was never a time when Moses wasn't in the presence of God. You see, God is everywhere present. You might be in bed tonight, or you might be staring blearied-eyed into the mirror in the morning, or you might be worshiping God on Sunday, but you're always in the presence of God. And what makes this situation at Sinai different is that this is the place where God chooses to make his presence known in a unique way. At Sinai, he says he'll come and make his glory known, but also he'll veil his glory so that the people aren't consumed. So why does God choose to do that now? It's because he is about to give his people his holy law. And God says he wants the people of Israel to hear when he speaks to Moses so that they might believe Moses forever. So let's understand that from the perspective of Israel. They're never to think that Moses is anything other than the prophet of God. He's not leading them or speaking to them as he sees fit. He's speaking the words the great creator has called upon him to speak. But notice also that Moses is to be believed forever, says the text. And that includes you and I today. Don't read the words of Moses as if it's Moses speaking. God revealed himself to this man at Sinai. Moses wasn't speaking on his own authority. What then follows in the rest of this chapter, well, it can easily be divided into three units. First, the people receive instructions as to how to prepare themselves for their encounter with God. Second, God then reveals himself in part, but veils his splendor as well. And finally, the people from this encounter receive rules about how God is going to be approached in the future. So let's start then with the people's preparation for their meeting with God. And here I'm reading Exodus 19, 10 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. The point of all of this, as we remember, is that the people should never think that God is the invention of Moses. You know, for the sake of their faith, so that they might believe, God is about to reveal himself. You know, if you want an image of that, think about God stepping out from behind a veil and revealing his splendor. Get ready, says God. You've got to prepare for this. And that's the key to understand this passage. Imagine, if you will, to the very end of the age. All humanity will then stand before the great white throne of judgment. The vast majority of the human race will not have prepared themselves for that encounter with God, and that results in horrible tragedy. But now, Israel at Sinai. This is not the judgment seat, but they are about to stand at a place where God will reveal his glory. The thing to learn is that you don't just saunter into God's presence. You've got to prepare. The essential preparation is internal they've got to repent of all that offends god they need to cast aside all that displeases the ultimately holy god but israel needs some kind of an external representation of that you see many external things help us with internal matters i mean think about it if you're a parent and you're teaching your children to pray so what do you need to do well you start by emphasizing what externals close your eyes Bend your knees, fold your hands, bow your head. See, these are all external matters, but each external matter teaches us something about submission to our creator. It's no different here. First, every person in the entire nation is to put a boundary around the mountain. No one is permitted to touch it. This is reinforced with a strong warning. I mean, archers are standing ready to shoot anyone who tries to get near. Think Israel is told as a mountain as being a death zone. Get near to it, you die. And as you think about that, think also that God is to be feared and not treated as something that is ordinary. Notice also they're called upon to wash their clothes. You'll not appear before God in dirty clothing. I know that some of us, especially those who are of an older generation, remember being told of wearing Sunday clothing. The idea behind that was... That as one embarks on a day that is set aside as holy and that's dedicated to worship, that externally one was to wear clothing that were unlike the clothing that you wore for the rest of the week. And so the washing of clothes here and making sure that no dirt is found on that clothing symbolizes an inner life that should not appear before God with a callous disregard of sins committed. Turn from your sins. Cleanse yourself from your sin. God is about to appear. You don't want to stand before him in filthy clothing. Notice also that they were to have no sexual relations. Now look, that doesn't mean that Israel was to think that sexual relations within marriage were wrong. They're not. They're a gift from God. But the idea here is that they are to abstain from something good in order to demonstrate that they gladly turn away from everything so that they might have God's blessing. You know, look, This is no different than the principle of fasting. Food is good, it's a blessing from God, but fasting demonstrates that we gladly lay aside that which is good for a period of time so that we might revel in God's presence. Then the final instruction on the third day, they're going to hear a long blast from the trumpet. In the ancient world, when people didn't have the means of mass communication, the way to communicate was through trumpet blasts. And here, a long blast on the third day was a signal that Israel was to arrange themselves in some fashion and come near to the mountain. Not too close. Barriers are set up, but near enough so that they will assemble before God. It's quite a scene. I mean, you think all that preparation. We have to imagine an assigned location for every person among the 12 tribes. Everyone is brought to a sacred assembly. Everyone's being told that the great God of heaven is about to part the curtain and reveal his glory. They're invited to come and see the glory of God. Now, if everything Moses had been saying up to this point in time were simply some sort of a trick, that would become plain. But if it was God who brought them out of Egypt, and God who brought them to this sacred mountain, and God who had delivered them here, this would be revealed as well. Everyone in the camp was finding their place to stand, hushed voices, expectation, waiting for
0: God. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in god's word but in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the lord we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved it's not just about knowing how to share our faith but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes this is why back to the bible canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.
1: I've often wondered what it must have felt like for the 500 that Paul spoke of, all that saw and heard the Lord Jesus speak after his resurrection. I mean, can you imagine the expectation? Jesus had been crucified before the watching people of Jerusalem. And now the crowd gathers and they're about to see the same Jesus raised from the dead, giving proof that he indeed was the Lord of life and death. I mean, I can almost hear the the buzzing in the crowd before Jesus actually showed up. I mean, what would he say? What would it be like to see him resurrected humanity, the kingdom of God breaking into the present hour? I mean, imagine having been there. Well, in the same way, Israel, who had seen the works of God, I mean, the devastations that he wrought on Egypt, as well as the miracles of bread and water, and to say nothing of their victory over the Amalekites. Well, they were about to meet the God they were following. Imagine the fear, the excitement, the trembling, even the silence and the awe. Just three months ago, they had been slaves. And now today, the entire nation was before the mountain of God in preparation with a meeting with their God. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. It's now the day when God will reveal himself and everything's ready. The people have purified themselves. And on the morning when God will visit his people, before the trumpet sounds to assemble the nation, the manifestation of God's glory has already begun. It's morning. The sky's black. The thunder sounds, lightning is flashing in the sky, a very thick, very dense cloud covers the mountain. This cloud would most likely have resembled the cloud pillar that had gone before them, the one that they saw that became a pillar of fire by night. But on this particular morning, the entire mountain of God is surrounded by a very thick, dark cloud. And then there's a very loud trumpet blast, far louder than could have been produced by a human trumpeter. The Hebrew literally says it was a trumpet's voice, the voice of the trumpet so loud that all the people began to tremble. It was God's trumpet that was sounding. Of course, we don't know what it sounded like. You know, I've got a memory as a child, first time ever being taken to an air show. Military jets were flying overhead, low to the ground. The sound of them absolutely terrified me. And we don't know what the trumpet of Sinai sounded like, but it terrified Israel. But the long trumpet blast was clearly from God. He was calling the nation, come assemble before me. We don't know how long it took you know, for everyone to get their, their station. I imagine it took several hours. But by then, we're told that not only was Sinai wrapped in smoke, but that God manifested his presence there by descending on the mountain in fire. So smoke, fire. The smoke is rapidly going up into the air. You know, later on, when Moses again described that scene, it's found in Deuteronomy 4, verse 11. Here's what he said. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. See, that phrase, fire that burned to the heart of heaven... It makes it seem like the fire that ascended went up as far as the human eye could see. And next we're told that the people heard the voice of God calling to Moses, speaking to his prophet. Well, we're not yet describing this event if we don't mention the words of verse 18. It says the mountain was trembling greatly. And I imagine then that the earthquake that was felt on the mountain was also felt on the desert floor. So smoke, fire, earthquake, the voice of God. Go again to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Moses said, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. See, that lesson, that there was an audible voice of God, but there was no form, it was part of the lesson that Israel had to learn. God was never to be thought of in human terms either taking upon the form of a man or the form of any animal or any part of creation. God is spirit and distinct from the creation. In the end, as we're going to see in the next chapter, all of the Ten Commandments are spoken by God verbally, audibly to the people. That is, it's not just that the Ten Commandments were written down and that they formed the groundwork for everything that Israel was to be given. But rather, the point is that God spoke it audibly to them. Now, listen, it's not that, you know, unless God speaks the Ten Commandments, you know, they don't have authority. The point is here that Israel is given a reason for their faith. They are to know for certain that these are the words of God. Now, we've seen that God demanded preparation. Now we see that God showcases his veiled glory glory in that all creation trembles before him and the evidence of his presence as he speaks. It's not an inner subjective voice. It's an external objective voice in which the entire nation hears him speaking at the same time. Now we come to the consequence of this event, and it's found in verses 21 to 25. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up on Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. I find this section remarkable. You know, after this rather terrifying revelation of God, the reaction of the people is not to run in the other direction. It was to run toward the mountain. And furthermore, they'd been given a very clear instruction before this whole thing began to stay away from touching the mountain. Now, I assume here, from reading this text, that in spite of the instructions that God had clearly given the people, some of them would very quickly have ignored all of that. They would have rushed head-on, thinking that they'd not yet seen God, and they were determined to see Him. And had there not been an intervention now, I had no doubt that thousands would have rushed to the mountain, and it would resulted in the death of thousands. And so immediately here, and I think the warning was given through trusted leaders, people shouting orders all around the camp. Anyone who breaks through this barrier is going to die. Thousands of you break through, it will mean all thousand of you die. Indeed, you know we can see that even the priests who should have known better had to be warned as well. Let me repeat these words. The lesson is plain. If God is approached on our terms rather than on the terms that he sets the result will be the death of the enthusiast. God is not to be trivialized, nor should access to him be thought of as something that we control. Listen, we don't. He does. The lesson gets repeated in both Testaments, whether it's Nadab and Abihu offering unauthorized fire to God and being consumed because of it, or whether it's the people who who saw the ark coming back from Philistia and opening it up, and therefore they died. In every example, God is not to be trivialized. That's also true in the New Testament. We may approach the presence of God, sure enough, but we can only approach through the blood of Jesus, who is God's chosen one. Without his blood, without his forgiveness— And without our surrendering our lives into the hands of christ there is no access to god god can never be approached in our terms that brings me back to the story of yuri gagarin remember he was the soviet cosmonaut who said he had been up to the heavens and and he didn't see god well the truth is that god is not seen by our ascending into the heavens nothing that human beings can do or no place that they can go can bring them into the presence of God. God is only seen when he condescends to make himself known. Now here's one of the greatest secrets of all. 2,000 years ago, God veiled his glory in the flesh of a baby. Jesus, the eternal Son, entered into our world, veiled the full glory of God behind the veil of humanity. And this is greater than the revelation at Sinai, because when the Son of God appeared to us, He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed the lepers. The lame leapt for joy. Demons fled in terror. And the dead decaying body of Lazarus stepped out of the tomb. Listen, we have seen his glory, writes the Apostle John. We have stood before a splendor even greater than Sinai. All doubt has been removed. He is there. He is not silent. Our God lives.
0: Thanks, John. Let me ask you, If somebody came to you in a conversation and said to you, I see no evidence of God, what would you say to them?
1: Well, I suppose I'd begin by asking them what exactly they're looking for when they look for evidence of God. Um, My sense is people are looking for some kind of an idolatrous version of God. But creation itself speaks of the grandeur of God, Um, the cross, the resurrection, Uh, The Bible itself that we hold, the most unusual book in human history. Um, the, The profound change in the lives of people who have encountered God. Over and over again, we see evidence of God. So I suppose you can only say that if you discount so much evidence that is already before us.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we conclude our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.